0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'll double check if you're using this Bible. There are more Bibles like this over near where you came in this morning if you need one. I believe we're around page 953. We're on 953 this morning. Overhearing a conversation in which you are not a part uh, can be a confusing and dangerous thing. I think especially if you overhear a conversation that's happening among family members, because, you know, probably your household is like this as well. You have, you have certain words or phrases, certain little uh, inside jokes in your home, pet phrases you might use. And then there are all the shared experiences that you have together, that you can simply say a word or two and everybody's mind goes to that and and fills in all the blanks. When words are used that way, um, it can be confusing, especially if if you listen in on it and you're not part of it. And that's the risk we run this morning in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, really throughout the book, but I think especially in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, because it is filled with with irony. And in it, the Apostle Paul even goes as far as using biting sarcasm. And so this morning, we really need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand what's going on in our text, as well as understanding the context. We need to understand to whom the Apostle Paul is speaking and why, again, he is writing to them. Well, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that is very gifted and very dear to him relationship was just mentioned. Paul had a close relationship with this church. He had been there and spoken the gospel about five years prior. People had come to faith. A church had been planted and established there, and Paul had spent at least a year and a half there grounding those folks in the gospel. He was and considered himself their spiritual father. That's why he says later in chapter 4 to the, the Corinthians, for though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers. And Paul says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's who Paul is toward the people he is writing. And we're, we're listening into that as we read 1 Corinthians and, and study through it. And then there's the reason why Paul is writing to them. We need to keep that in mind, especially th- this morning in chapter 4. Paul is writing to this church because they have become very messed up and very proud. As a congregation, they have some really serious sin issues that he's just about to address beginning in chapters 5 and 6. That he needs to address a sexual immorality that's going on in the church. He needs to address lawsuits between Christians. He needs to address a lack of church discipline in their out-of-control worship services. And even more... This group had an an overarching sense of of a prideful attitude that showed up in a couple different ways. One was in the way that they valued and looked at church leaders. What they valued in church leaders was charisma, the power of personality, the the ability to present oneself, and especially to speak. Verbal eloquence was at the top of the list. It It was the wisdom of their culture that they so appreciated. And then they had pride in their own sense of having arrived spiritually. They understood that their possession of of their heavenly inheritance through faith in Jesus Christ, signified by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, meant that, that they were something special, that they already were there. And so the result of their prideful approach was these divisions or factions or cliques within the church that we've mentioned several times. There were many who were embarrassed to be connected with Paul because Paul didn't seem like a really impressive teacher. His appearance was not impressive. He didn't have a a great uh, verbal skill. Many were more impressed with Apollos. Apollos was the man. He was the preacher who was so powerful and polished that people just wanted to, to hear him. And so, so far in verses, or in chapters 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians, we've watched the Apostle Paul correcting this prideful approach by applying the gospel of Jesus Christ, the simple gospel of Jesus Christ in him crucified. Remember Paul said, that was all I knew. That was the main thing when I was among you. And now beginning in chapter 5, where we'll be in a couple of weeks, Paul is going to begin to correct those issues I just mentioned with the authority of the apostle of their spiritual father. He's going to call them out on the sin issues that are present in their church. And so here we are today, beginning chapter four, and we'll finish it, Lord willing, next week. And this chapter serves as a sort of hinge between those two things, between addressing that prideful attitude and as authoritative correctives of these sin issues. So Paul is moving from a gut-wrenching appeal to an apostolic directive. And he does so in our text by way of personal example, in particular regarding the nature of his apostolic ministry. And he does it, again, using much sarcasm at some points and with great irony, all of which make this passage that we're looking at this morning really one of the most unique passages in the Bible in that sense. And so we need to just just hear a little bit of a caution light go on as we enter this text this morning. Yet, if we do understand this text aright, I believe it has the great potential to yield fruit for followers of Jesus Christ. It has the ability to help shape us and form us in terms of our discipleship in particular as we look at the means that God uses through the gospel to shape believers more and more into the image of Christ, more and more into the disciples that he's calling them to be. And so I want to uh, put up just a little road map of where we're going this morning through this text through three movements. One, look at the the means that God uses to shape us more and more into the image of Christ, more and more into his disciples. Three movements looking at a gospel-centered evaluation to shape us more into disciples, a gospel-centered application, and a gospel-centered identification. So let's look for those as we get into chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Please follow along as I read from the beginning of the chapter through verse 13 this morning. Paul says this is how you should regard us us being apostles this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God moreover it is required of a stewards of stewards that they be found faithful but with me it's a very small thing that i should be judged by you or by any human accord in fact i do not even judge myself for i am not aware of anything "...against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore I do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his or her commendation from God." I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos, For your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want, already you have become rich, without us you have become kings, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is God's holy word. And we thank God for it. And God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to understand your word aright. Spirit, do your work of illumination, of turning the lights on in our minds opening our hearts, God, to how you want to shape and mold us and form us more into the image of Christ through your word this morning. We ask this with great anticipation, knowing this is a prayer that you want to answer for your people, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's start by observing this gospel-centered means of evaluation. How do you feel about evaluations? How do you feel when your employee review is coming up? Perhaps just a little bit of churning in the stomach, as you might think about that, or or report card day. Well, how one is evaluated depends very much on, on their expectations. What is their job title or position, and what is their job description? Paul was an apostle. As was Apollos. And Paul is referring to him and Apollos throughout this and, and their attitudes toward them. But here it gets a lot more personal. It's really much more about a relationship that's become strained between the apostle and this church that was and still is so dear to him. And Paul says straight out in verse, in verse one, this is how you should regard us. This is how you should understand our job description as apostles. We are servants of Christ. Now Paul had already said that the apostles are servants of Christ back in chapter 3 verse 5. He said that they were servants on behalf of the Corinthian church. But here Paul uses a different word for servant because his point is a little bit different. He's saying we're servants of Christ We're servants that belong to Christ. I am Jesus' servant. And then he goes on to clarify that with the other word he uses, which is really paralleling servant here. We are servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is someone who is a household manager, perhaps even a slave maybe at the highest rung of of being a slave, and yet a slave still whose responsibility is to manage all the assets and the, the affairs and the home of his master. Paul says that's what we are. We are servants. And therefore, my job description is simply this, to be found faithful. That's my one job is I need to be found faithful as a servant. As I read that, I couldn't help but thinking about Mr. Carson, the butler on Downton Abbey. Mr. Carson has one job, and that is to oversee the affairs of Lord Grantham, and to make sure everything Lord Grantham needs is taken care of there at the manor, at Downton Abbey. And sometimes, sometimes Carson, and Lord Grantham disagree on something. Sometimes the other servants downstairs uh, don't really get what Mr. Carson is doing. But at the end of the day, he just has one job that he does well, and that is to take care of the needs of his master, to be faithful to his master. At the end of the day, that is how he's going to be evaluated. Has he been faithful to the master and the master alone? No one else's opinion or evaluation of him matters. No one else is in the place to evaluate him. And that's what Paul is saying about himself here. My job is to be faithful. Your evaluation of me doesn't matter. In fact, Paul goes so far, my evaluation of me doesn't even matter, Paul says. All that matters is, am I being found faithful to my Lord and Master, Jesus Christ? Now when Paul says, no person may judge me, he's not doing that thing I see on Facebook no man may judge me. God is my judge. It's not that thing. He's simply saying at the end of the day, it is the Lord's opinion that matters above anything else. He is going to evaluate, and he is going to evaluate me based on one criteria. Have I been faithful to the thing that he has called me to do? To be a, be a steward, to be a manager of the mysteries of God. Of the gospel. Paul says the mysteries of God. He's used that term before, uh, back in chapter 2, verse 7. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom which God decreed before the ages for your glory. That word secret there is the same word mystery. The mystery that was concealed in in what we call the Old Testament, that there would be a Savior, that there would be a Messiah, has now been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And, And Paul has been swept into that. In fact, he has a specific role of making known the mysteries of the gospel to those who don't know it yet. And Paul says, that's what I'm going to be judged on. That's what I'm going to be evaluated on. Have I been faithful to that call? As a leader of Christ's church, that will be the criteria. Have I been faithful to preach the gospel of Christ and him crucified? And Paul here is speaking as a leader in the church, and there is definitely application here, uh, both for us who are leaders and us who are followers in the church. Uh, there's a word for us here. For leaders in the church, that word is faithfulness. Make faithfulness your aim. If you have a role of leadership in the church, if you're an elder, if you're a deaker, if you're deacon, if you're a leader of a small group, if you're a leader of a Sunday school class, if you're a leader of rolling that thing of books out on Sunday morning, then there's one criteria that the Lord has for you. Are you faithful to the thing that you've been called to do by him? And for us who are followers, there's a word here, and it is faithfulness. What is the measuring stick? What is the metric for which we will choose leaders in the local church? It needs to be faithfulness. Think about King Saul in the Old Testament. And think about the criteria that was used by the Israelites to choose him. He was the tallest guy in the room. And he looked like he could beat up every other guy. And so they chose him to be king. And it was a disastrous choice. But remember how the Lord called out David. And remember the qualities in young shepherd boy David that God highlighted. That he was faithful. He was faithful to the tasks in his father's home. And the Lord looked at his heart our criteria for choosing leaders in the local church ought to be the same. Are they faithful people? Not are they the most impressive people, not are they the smartest, not are they the strongest, not are they the most charismatic. Are they faithful? And while there is a word here for leaders and for followers, I think there is a word for all of us who who follow Jesus Christ and, and therefore are his servants. There's a faithfulness principle we need to learn. It applies to all of us, not just leaders. Think about Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Remember the, the context of that. That there was a, a, a master, a, a landowner, who went on a great journey. He called his servants to, to them, and he entrusted them with his property as stewards. And he gave to one uh, five portions of his property, and another two, and, and another one. And then after a long Time being gone, he came back and he wanted to know had his servants been faithful with what they'd been entrusted. Some entrusted a lot, some entrusted an average amount, some entrusted just a little bit, but he just wanted to know had they been faithful. And for those who had been faithful, the message was the same. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little bit. I will set you over much. And then here's the best part. And now enter into the joy of your master. It's a message that all of us want to hear from our master, Jesus Christ. You have been my faithful servant. You have been faithful with what I have given you. Now enter into my rest. Enter into the joy. But notice that joy of rest is something that we we look forward to. It's something in the future. It calls for us to live in light of eternity right now. To live today knowing that that eternity matters. That was Paul's mindset here. He was very much thinking about timing. He even talks about the Lord's return here. He make, let's not pass judgments or let's not make evaluations before the time. We need to be faithful now. When Jesus returns, that will be the time when he will make the evaluation. That is the time when when each of his servants will receive their commendation or their praise from him. The Corinthians had a real challenge about time, about what was going to be now and what was going to be then in getting those two things mixed up. And we're going to see that a little bit more in just a moment. And so the first principle here is that a gospel-centered evaluation produces faithful disciples. As a disciple of Jesus, our motivation, our greatest motivation and greatest desire, notice Paul talks about the hidden purposes of the heart, our greatest motivation ought to be faithfulness. That ought to be the, the measure of our evaluation, as well as our motivation. So the gospel reminds us that we are servants of Christ and that our evaluation will be based on faithfulness. Secondly, there is in this text a gospel-centered application, a gospel-centered application beginning in verse 7, and verse 6. And Paul says there that he has applied this faithfulness principle both to himself and to his fellow apostles. Apostle, Apollos. For the benefit of the Corinthian church. So that they may learn not to go beyond, he says, what is written. That is that they may learn not to go beyond what has com- God has communicated in his revealed word. Failure to apply God's word is causing these Christians to become, Paul says, puffed up with pride. And Paul is trying to speak God's word to them because Paul, as an apostle, is speaking God's word. What he says is God's word. It is authoritative. But notice he's also been uh, teaching them from the Old Testament. And all that has been for the purpose of deflating their egos. They've become inflated. They've become puffed up. Paul is applying scripture to them in order to deflate them, bring them back to, as it were, their their proper size. Note how he's done that with the text he's, also, he's already referred to in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's writing to them as prideful people. He wants to deflate that pride with the sword of the Spirit, God's Word. And so in chapter 1, he, he writes to them, quoting Isaiah chapter 29, Chapter 1, verse 19. God speaking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The end of chapter 1. Let no one boast in themselves, rather. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what the heart of man nor had the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And then at the end of chapter, at the end of chapter two, for who has understood the mind of the Lord to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? And then just in last week's passage, Paul referred to a text from Job and a text from Psalm, again, wanting to deflate their pride reminding them of their accountability before the Lord, that the Lord catches the wise in their craftiness. He knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And so let no one boast in people. Paul is seeking to deflate their their big heads by pointing to God's word and the danger of pride. And Paul says, when you go beyond what is written, when, when, you, when you put yourself, as it were, above Scripture, and you get a big head. You get an inflated ego. Then the standard of what is right and what is wrong becomes yourself rather than what God has revealed to us. And so Paul's correction here is sharp, but it's necessary. So let's break it down, because perhaps we struggle with some of these same pride issues. Paul says, okay, look, let's break this down, shall we? He starts asking them some really pointed, exposing questions. First of all, let me ask you this, chapter, verse 7. Who sees anything different in you? Uh, how exactly are you guys different from any other person on the face of the earth? I mean, we're all created in God's image. That wasn't your idea. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and stand under his judgment apart from Christ. You're no different. Ah, but you may say, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. I have eternal life to look forward to. Okay, how did that come about? And Paul asks, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have, Christian, that you did not receive. And if you received it, you know, I think receive. It's it's like the quarterback threw the pass to you right there. I mean, you couldn't do anything but catch it. You received it. If you received it, why do you boast? There's that word again. Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And friends, all we have is from God through Christ. You see, the gospel, rightly understood, devastates our pride and it deflates our ego. At the same time, as our ego is being deflated, as the the attention is being taken off ourselves and our propensity towards self-worship, As the gospel deflates our own egos, it at the same time inflates our capacity to be grateful to God. See, when we we apply the gospel, we apply the truth of God's word, it produces gratitude. It produces grateful disciples. John Piper has a helpful illustration here. The gospel magnifies Christ. Christ. And we use that word magnify in a couple of different ways, he says. You can can magnify uh, uh, like a microscope magnifies, or you can magnify like a telescope magnifies. A, a, A microscope takes really tiny things, really small things, things we wouldn't think were very significant, and it makes them bigger so that we can see them. A telescope, on the other hand, helps us to see and gain some little bit of perspective on things that are so massive and huge, like, like stars and planets and galaxies, things that, that we couldn't hardly take in. It, it brings it down so that we can, can begin to grasp some of the magnitude and the greatness and the glory of it. That, that is how God is magnified in the gospel. Not something small that's made big, but something huge, massive, that we begin to just get a smallest taste of. And our response is that our hearts well up with gratitude, well up with thankfulness. Who am I? Isn't this uh, what, was, what uh, Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple? Who am I? God, that I would be your your servant. Who are we that we would be his people, that we would be recipients of his grace, that he would show us his goodness in giving his son for us, that by simply trusting in him, turning from self, we can have forgiveness of sins, we can have salvation, we can have eternal life. None of these things did we deserve. We deserved God's wrath. Who are we? And so as the focus is taken off of myself and the focus is put on Christ through the gospel, there is a capacity for gratitude. That is inflated in me as, as self is deflated. Friends, we need to hear this word today because our hearts have this deceptive tendency. They have this, this blinding tendency toward our own pride. Yes, we know from God's word, we know from our experience that there's nothing good in us, and therefore, having repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we know that that is owing to God completely, yet our flesh tries to convince us of something else. We continue to have this tendency to to smuggle a little bit of our own pride into our salvation. Maybe after being a believer for a little while, we're tempted to believe that you know, maybe it was something that God foresaw in me that caused him to save me. After all, I make a pretty good Christian. I'm a pretty wonderful person when you think about it, especially when you compare me to a lot of the other people that are out there. I mean, when I see other people who are so selfish and they don't even care about God and I'm in church on Sunday morning, well, I mean, it just makes sense that I must be a little bit better than them, right? We begin to think that we deserve what we have. We begin to think that God owes us things. And then trials come into our lives. Difficulties come into our lives. We begin to get angry at God. We never say it out loud. We never say I'm mad at God. But we begin to think, this, this shouldn't be happening to me. I've been faithful to God. This shouldn't be happening to me. I'm entitled to a relatively trouble-free life. Look how much I do for God. And then we read a text like this morning that says, the sword of the Spirit cuts straight to our heart and says, Dear one, what do you have that was not given to you? How how am I? How, How are you any different? We need our egos deflated So that our capacity to worship God can be inflated, it can be magnified. And here's the good news. I love there's good news in this, all throughout this passage. And in one of the aspects of good news is the way Paul. I mean, he's got he's got an issue with these folks. He's got a beef with these folks, and yet he says, "I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos." For your benefit, brothers and sisters. You're my my dear family in Christ. And and I'm applying this. I'm not going to write you off. I'm not going to throw you under the bus because you're really screwing up. See, when there is that relationship in the body of Christ, this is how we can love one another. I'm writing something really hard to you, but it is for your benefit. I first applied it to myself. It is for your benefit so that you may learn. There's hope in that phrase, so that you may learn. If by God's grace we will be teachable before him, then he wants to help us learn. So we should take much hope, we should have much hope in this word this morning. The word of God protects us, and the word of God shapes us as disciples. As we view the gospel in it and apply it, it produces gratitude in us as disciples. And gratitude is the ongoing response of the disciple. Finally, let's look at a gospel-centered identification that Paul makes in this passage. Now this last section, verses 8 through 13, um, the sarcasm and the irony are at a peak in this little paragraph. It's like, it's like when the National Weather Service goes from a tornado watch, like, hey, watch out, might be tornadoes, just kind of keep, keep your eye out there, to a warning like, hey, siren going off, red alert, right? We're going from a watch to a warning right here. That's why I need a drink. There's just no good way to do that up here. I mean, you're all looking at me, and he's like, oh, the, he's grabbing the water bottle now. I might as well just, you know, identify it. Here, Paul identifies who the Corinthians are and who he is in their estimation. You got to follow the pronouns in this uh, section here, and you've got to understand some of the sarcasm and the irony that are wrapped into how Paul's, uh, Paul's language here. Verse 8, Paul begins to identify them, who they are in their minds. Already, that's an important word here, already you have all you want, or already you are full, already you are satisfied. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, or uh, maybe more literally, without us, you have begun your reign. You're having your best life now. Then Paul says, and would that you did reign, so that we might rule with you. See, the Corinthians are having this now and then challenge, and I'm going to put a graphic up, or have, I'm not going to put it up, I'm going to ask for it to be put up there on the, um, there we go, thanks. I've, I've been coming back to this reality that we need to understand in this passage, that the, 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 the already and the not yet, the, the, the intersection of the two ages, the, the, the present age, and I've been kind of doing like this every time I did it, so I thought I'd find a graphic that might help us, but the, the Bible speaks of two ages, the present age and the age to come. And Jesus, when Jesus came and, and lived and died and rose again as our Savior, he, he ushered in the, the, the new age, the age of Messiah, the age of his kingdom, the, the age that will end in the new creation with all things being everything that God intended for them to be way back in the beginning when he created things and, and, the, and the fall happened. And so now we live in this, this unusual time, not unusual, but this, this, this overlap of the ages between Jesus' first coming, which signals the beginning of the end of the present age and the doom of God's enemies, and, and the second coming, when, when all things will be put right and, and the kingdom will be perfected and the kingdom will be consummated and everything will be as it was intended to be. But, but now, we've got, we've got some of that already, but a lot of it is, is not yet. We're living in, in the overlap between the present age, which is fading, and the age to come, the age of Messiah. It's already become, begun because of Jesus. Now, the Corinthians were, a, were, were confused about which things were already theirs, like, like having the spirit. Like like having salvation, having the promise of eternal life. But there were some things that were not yet. And so when Paul says, already, he is, he is full-blown sarcasm there. Already you are fully satisfied. And what he means is, you're, you're, you're drawn down on something that isn't yet yours. That will be one day, we have the promise of it, but we're not there yet, friend. They are identifying themselves as kings. They are identifying themselves as those who are already reigning. They're identifying themselves as winners, verse 10, those who should be at the front of the parade. Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake, ah, but but you are wise. Paul wakes them up here using one of the most vivid pictures in all of Scripture. Scripture. And he does this in order to put things in perspective. For them to understand, they, they really looked up to the apostles, including Apollos. And so Paul lumps Apollos in here and he says, you know what? Here's really, we're servants of Christ. Here's something else you should know about the apostles. I feel like God has put the apostles at the very end of the parade. Like men sentenced to death in the arena. And the picture here is of a great victory parade, of, of kings returning, uh, through, marching through the city in victory. And they're, they're showing all, this, all that they've captured and all the, the riches that they've accumulated through their, their conquests and their warring and all the exotic things they've captured from other countries. And then there are those uh, dignitaries of those other countries that are walking through in shame. And then at the very end of the parade... Are those people who are condemned to die in the arena. Perhaps they'll be slain by gladiators, perhaps they'll be thrown to the beasts. But they're, all they're good for now is th- they're, they're fodder for our sport. They're condemned to die. And Paul says, "You have heroes in us apostles. Well, here are your heroes. We are like men. We're like the walking dead. We're men condemned to die. And just to make it absolutely clear, (laughs) Paul uses some really graphic words at the end of this text. We have been, and we are up to this present hour, he says, the scum of the earth. Literally, it's... Whatever is at the bottom of your shower right now—that's what that word means. It is the leftover residue. It is whatever at the bottom of your garbage can. Whatever you scrape off the bottom of your shoes—the refuse of all things. Paul says that's how you should—that's how you should regard us. You have been—you have been magnifying human personalities. You have been putting your hope and your faith in that. Now we are just we are conduits through which the gospel has come to you. We are servants of Christ. You don't even get to judge us. Our judgment is whether we've been faithful to the master. As far as you are concerned, we are the scum of the earth. That's humbling. <laughs> Does it get more humble than being than considering yourself scum? That's Paul's identification here. And he's calling he's calling the believers at Corinth to a greater identification as scum. As those who are condemned to die. For the purpose of humbling them. Because a gospel-centered identification produces humility. It produces humble disciples. And, friends, this is the way of our Master, isn't it? This is the way of the cross. Paul says all these things that Paul says of himself of being reviled, of being persecuted, of being slandered, of being abused. These were all true of Jesus, weren't they? Jesus was reviled. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was slandered. Jesus was abused. Paul says he, his fellow apostles, really all believers, are like people sentenced to death. Can we help but think about the one man who was sentenced to death on our behalf, the Lord Jesus? See, friends, when we, when we understand the gospel aright, when, when our identification of ourselves is through a gospel lens, that produces humility in us. Here in this section, the Apostle Paul, with great irony and not a little sarcasm, exposes this church's self satisfied approach to Christian discipleship. They think they've arrived, they think they are the king's kids. Paul takes the opposite approach to following Christ. Discipleship means following the path of suffering and hardship that our Savior humbly walked before us. That really is the point of being humbled. It's not not to wallow in our scumminess. The point of being humbled, the point of pursuing humility as disciples, is to walk the path that our Savior walked. Notice verse 12. Paul outlines how he is being spent. He's spending his life for others. We labor with our working with our hands. The Corinthians were embarrassed that he that their basically that their pastor had another job and worked with his hands as a tent maker. But Paul says, you know what, I'm doing this for the sake of the gospel. I'm doing this for the joy of those to whom I am telling about Jesus. And so I have no problem working with my hands. And when I'm reviled, I bless. And when I'm persecuted, I endure. And when I'm slandered, I entreat. Why? Dear brothers and sisters, it's all for your joy. It's all that you might know the Savior. It's all for the the greater good of God's glory and the advancement of the gospel. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel, spending ourselves for the joy of others, for their joy in Jesus Christ. And so we've observed today in this passage that with our focus on the gospel and a gospel-centered evaluation, God uses that to produce faithful disciples. And when our, when our application is gospel-centered, there is gratitude produced in us. These are the means that God uses to make us more and more into the image of Christ. And when there's a gospel-centered identification, that produces humility in his people. You see, only grace, only God's grace has the power to make us faithful and grateful and humble. These are the means that God uses. Understanding grace, that's what the Spirit uses to make us faithful and grateful and humble disciples of Christ. It's grace. It's God's grace that transforms us. That undeserved gift, that gift that Paul was speaking about when he said, what do you have that you, don't, that you did not receive? You see, we keep coming back to that question, and that's a question that we ought to keep coming back to in our life as disciples of Jesus. What do I have that I didn't receive? Gordon Fee, in his uh, commentary on 1 Corinthians, has a very insightful and, I think, very helpful and potentially sanctifying statement about that question in verse 7. And I want to close with this. Commenting on that question, what do you have that you did not receive? Fee writes, this is an invitation to experience one of those rare, unguarded moments of total honesty where in the presence of eternal God, one recognizes that everything, absolutely everything, everything, that one has is a gift. All is of grace. Nothing is deserved. Nothing is earned. Those who so experience grace also live from a posture of unbounded gratitude. I want to ask you to close your eyes and and bow your heads for a moment. And I want to encourage you to respond to, as Fee puts it, the invitation to experience a rare moment of honesty in the presence of eternal God. Because God is here, we are gathered as his people, he is all places present, he is particularly present through his Holy Spirit, who magnifies the Lord Jesus as his people gather together. And I want you to just take a moment in the quietness of your heart before God to consider that. What do I have that I did not receive? What do I have? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. That's all of His grace. What do I have that I didn't receive? He made known my need for the Savior. He showed me my sin. And then he showed me Jesus as the perfect provision, the one whose whose blood flowed as he died at Calvary on the cross. Whose blood is sufficient to pay for all the penalty of my sin as I trust in him, in what he has accomplished, in what what God has accomplished in raising him from the dead, placing him at his right hand, where he will reign forever and one day return, giving me his Holy Spirit. I've received that. What do I have that I did not receive? God, you've given me a hope, and you've given me a future. I was a rebel to your will. (laughs) Lord, if you had not loved me, I would have continued to refuse you. But you looked upon my helpless estate. Lord, you, you showed me Jesus. You showed me the cross. You gave me eyes to behold your love displayed. To see Jesus suffering in my place, that he bore the wrath that I deserved. And now, Lord, all I know is grace because of what you have given me through Jesus Christ. Lord, what do I have that I did not receive? Lord, we worship you today. We worship you. You are magnified in our eyes, Jesus. You are magnified in our hearts as the Savior, as our Lord. We are your servants. And it is our joy to be your servants. You have set us free. What do we have that we did not receive from you? Jesus, we have you. And that's all that we need. We worship you today. and We praise you. Amen.